Just be, uh, before I start uh, my sermon, there's something I want to make you aware of. Uh, in the uh, book of Acts, uh, one of the things we'll see starting next week is wherever uh, the gospel is preached, there are people, of course, who love it and are saved, like we've seen already, but there is always uh, opposition and uh, sometimes persecution. Uh, and often that actually comes from governments. And uh, for ages in Australia, churches and Christians have had freedom to just preach the Bible and uh, live as Christians uh, free of any of that. Uh, It's an incredible blessing because that's not the case in many parts of the world. Uh, But in reality, there is actually a real danger to that at the moment. Uh, And the reason I raise this is for your prayers and potentially your action. Uh, The Federal Government's Law Reform Commission has just released uh, its first draft of a plan to basically remove all religious exemptions from discrimination Uh, legislation. And basically, uh, it's aimed to ensure that Christian schools and even churches on the first draft cannot say that you have to be a Christian to work for them, Uh, which if you think about it, is absolutely ludicrous. It's sort of like saying to the Labor Party, you can't, you you have to employ someone who's a member of the Liberal Party to to work for you. You you know, it's like that. But uh, it's crazy stuff. It goes way beyond what the government originally said was the purpose of this. Uh, but it's basically trying to stop Christian organisations being allowed to say we employ Christians and people who agree with our moral stance on things and so on and so forth. Now in the end, as Acts will show us, we shouldn't expect the government will make it easy for us as Christians. So some Christians, I think, talk about this like it's the end of the world or that sort of thing. No, this has actually been normal throughout history. But at the moment, there is an opportunity for people to actually respond to the government give their feedback uh, and say what you're proposing is not right and shouldn't become law, not just for Christians but for all groups really. Uh, So if you're someone who might like to complete a survey or give a response or something like that, please just email the church office uh, or put a note on your your feedback slip uh, and we'll get some information to you to help you do that, to help you know how you could uh, give a submission. And especially if you're a, a teacher Uh, or a parent uh, of kids in a church school or a Christian school, uh, it'd be particularly excellent if you felt moved to to put a submission in. But for all of us now, let's just be praying about all that, uh, and I'm going to do that now before we look at this chapter from Acts. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the news of eternal life. We have the wonderful news of the gospel, that our Lord Jesus came into the world to offer salvation, and we long for every person to know that. We thank you that in Australia for so long there has been such freedom to just preach without fear, uh, without worry. Uh, But Father, we are conscious that that is not always the case. And so we pray for wisdom for the government, that it might see that actually freedom of speech and freedom of religion are fundamental uh, rights that should be enshrined as part of uh, this country. And so Father, we pray for wisdom there and that uh, helpful submissions will be made. But Father, more than anything, we pray that whatever the rules, we will just get on with the task of teaching your word and preaching your gospel. And we pray that I'll do that this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's funny how uh, some passages of the Bible trigger memories for you. And this passage uh, is one of those. Uh, I didn't want to look around during the Bible reading to see if anyone else was humming a song while we read this story. Were there other people? People know the song I'm talking about. Uh, When uh, at the church where 
Victoria and I were before we went to Moore College and uh, we used to sing a song in Sunday school based on this passage. It's not Colin Buchanan worthy, uh, but some of you might remember it. I'll sing a bit. It says, Peter and John went to... I'm not really singing, I'm sort of poetizing it. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for some alms, held out his palms. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but that which I have give I thee. But in the name of Jesus Christ, it's a bit funny on that bit, of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then there was a chorus that goes, and he went, come on, sing it, you people. No, walking and leaping and praising God. Anyway, for that part, all the kids in the Sunday school would get up on their chairs and leap off their chairs to show that uh, they had been healed. But there was this one time as they were singing it, one of the kids jumps off the chair, falls over and breaks his arm. Uh, And let me tell you, he did not rise up and walk straight away. Uh, There were tears for hours. And again, his parents did not seem to get the irony when they were informed uh, that he broke his arm in a song about the healing of the lame man. But anyway, because of that, I always remember this story. Acts chapter 3 has a special uh, uh, place in my heart. And it's a story worth remembering because this is a great moment, I think. It's a wonderful moment. It's part of what we're seeing at the start of the book of Acts. The first three chapters of Acts, and in particular chapter 2 and 3, is this triumphant march of the gospel. Uh, there's a real sense of triumphalism in these, these opening chapters of Acts. We saw the day of Pentecost last week in chapter 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit. We saw how thousands of people were, were converted in one day. Uh, and then it told us every day new people were being saved. You know, the church had gone from 120 people to, to thousands almost overnight. They would, they would have had some great stories to share at their big day out. But uh, more than that, it was thriving. See, the picture you get at the end of chapter 2, which Mike only touched on briefly last week, is gatherings together full of committed people who've come to know Jesus, devoted to the gospel, devoted to Jesus, but also devoted to one another, sharing their lives. It's this, this wonderful picture. And now what we see is even miracles like this one are happening. It's a wonderful, almost triumphant picture of what God was doing to start his church. So let's look at it together. We'll start with the miracle. So uh, the power of the gospel is what I've called this first part, verses 1 to 10. So here are Peter and John, two of Jesus' apostles, in fact, the leaders of Jesus' apostles at this point. And on this afternoon, they were going up to the temple to pray. That's actually a little insight into the early church. They went, while the, while the temple was still standing, it would only be standing for another 30 or 40 years, but they went to the temple each day to pray because they were Jews. They didn't see themselves as starting a new religion. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So they, they said, well, we are the true Jews. So, so it's natural for us to go to the temple to pray. Uh, and they did that. This was no different on this day. But then in verse 2, they meet this crippled man. It tells us he'd been lame from birth. Uh, This is no sprained ankle. This man had never, ever walked. Uh, And so obviously friends would carry him up to this this prime spot to beg. Uh, I mean, if faithful people going to the temple weren't going to help him out, who was? Uh, But understand how hopeless his situation was. This man had no prospects. This was his life, totally helpless. There was no social welfare system in that day. He was totally reliant on the generosity of other people to live. And so he sees Peter and John coming. He asked them for help. Now, I don't think he's singling them out. He doesn't know that they are apostles. He doesn't know that that they are Christians. He would have asked every person 
have you got a coin to spare? Uh, and so he asked Peter and John, and that's where the story gets interesting. Come to verse 4. It says, Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. I think that is a great line there. He's expecting to get something from them, uh, maybe a few denarii, maybe a piece of silver. Well, he's going to get something, but far more than he ever dreamed of. Look at verse 6. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up, stood and started to walk. And he entered the temple complex with them, walking, leaping and praising God. Almost makes you want to get up on your chair and jump off, doesn't it? But please don't. Uh, It's just a wonderful miracle. Uh, But let's think about it. What do you notice about it? Just look over it again. What, What do you notice I hope you see that this miracle is very much like Jesus's miracles. It's instantaneous. The man's legs are are immediately healed. There's no medical rationale where you can sort of rationalize this. Jesus's miracles were with a word or with a touch. And so is this one. And that is so important because there is a reason this miracle is just like Jesus's miracles. And that's because this is still Jesus's miracle. It's really important to see Peter and John don't claim any credit for this. That They want to stress, this is not our power at work. Look again at verse 6. See what they say? In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Remember when we looked at chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago in our first sermon in this series, we stressed how Acts is not a new story. We said it's actually all about Jesus still. Well, this is making that same point. Yes, now the miracles are through the apostles, but it's Jesus who healed this man, not Peter, not John. It's a bit like when the billionaire makes a big donation to the charity and he sends his secretary along with the, with the oversized check. Yes, the secretary is sort of giving the money, but actually we know who is behind it. Well, that's the case here. It is Jesus who's giving this man life. So why does this miracle happen? other than that Peter and John felt compassion for this man. Well, two things, I think. The first is, as I've just said, this actually validates that the apostles are continuing the ministry of Jesus. The apostles, especially Peter and then Paul, do a number of miracles in Acts, and the purpose is always to validate their apostleship. What I mean by that is the miracles confirm they are speaking for Jesus. They they confirm they are continuing Jesus' ministry. That's one thing this miracle points out. But secondly, like so many of Jesus' miracles, this is an acted out picture of the gospel. So many of Jesus' miracles and then these by the apostles are effectively sermon illustrations. They're showing the gospel. See, in the same way that Jesus gave this man life, because that's what happened here, it gave him his life, so does the gospel give us life. In the same way that Jesus saved this man, So he saves anyone who turns and trusts in him. Just by the by on this, people have to make big arguments for miracles like this about how we should care for the sick and for the poor as Christians. And they make it like that's the main point of this, that that they're showing us we should care for the lame and so forth. Well, we can't do miracles like this. We do care for the poor and the lame. We do that as disciples of Jesus because we're called to love people. 
So of course we do that. We love people because Christ first loved us. But if you take anything from this story, don't take let's go care for sick people. Take out from it, make sure that people know that you love them because of the name of Jesus. You see, what good is it for people to know that Mike is generous? What good is that if they don't know that he's generous because he knows Jesus? What good is it for people to know that Phil is generous if, if they don't know that it's because of the love of Jesus? Then I get the glory or Mike gets the glory, not Jesus. So whatever good we do, whatever love we show, we do it so that Jesus' name is known and glorified, not so that our name is. But let's come back to the story. Come with me. Because the story doesn't end with the healing. As the man walked and leapt around the temple complex praising God, the people are amazed by what's happened because they have walked past this man for years. And they know he can't walk, he can't leap. And so they're thinking, hang on, we've put coins in his begging cup before. You know, here he is, not just walking, but jumping and leaping. And so the people are surprised, they're amazed. News spreads and a large crowd gathers. And just like last week at Pentecost, Peter once again sees the opportunity to move from the miracle to, like I said before, to move to what really matters, to move from the miracle to telling them about the one who has given life, telling them about the Lord Jesus. So the message of the gospel, verses 11 to 26. So here are Peter and John, all the people come flocking to them because of the miracle. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. Now, there is so much in these sermons in Acts. We, we saw the long Pentecost sermon last week in Acts chapter 2, and we could only touch on the details. And these, remember this, these are the first Christian sermons ever preached. Do you find that amazing? I find that incredible, that, that these are the first Christian sermons ever preached, Acts 2 and Acts 3. Uh, but I want us to see three big key points of what Peter has to say. The first is, it's all about Jesus. Just look from verse 12. It says, when Peter saw this, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. It's that same point from before. Don't give us the credit. It's Jesus we want you to know. We are just the channel. Jesus is the one you need to come to meet. And remember that, by the way, when you share your story. Sometimes I hear Christians share their, their testimony, their story of how they come to know Jesus, and it's all about them. Uh, our story should always tell people about Jesus. Our story should always point people to Jesus and what he's done for us, not ourselves. And do you notice just how much he packs in about who Jesus is in this little sermon? Uh, I counted that he gave Jesus four different titles in this short speech. Just quickly, look at verse 13. The first there is the servant of God. That is the one promised from the Old Testament who, who would come to die for the sins of God's people. He's saying Jesus is the one the Old Testament talked about. Secondly, verse 14, he calls him the holy and righteous one. That's a title for God. Only God is holy and righteousness. Then in verse 15, he calls him the source of life. Isn't that incredible? He's saying this Jesus is, is more than a man. He was there when God created the world in the beginning. He gave us life. More than that, though, his resurrection means we can have eternal life. Jesus is the source both of this life and the life to come, if you think about it. And then fourthly, verse 18, he is the Messiah. He is God's promised King and Saviour. 
Now, I could spend an hour unpacking every one of those titles, but that's for another day. The point is, Peter is saying, this is who I want you to know. This is who we must want people to know. The Lord Jesus, who has been declared by his Father to be the servant, the holy and righteous one, the source of life, and the Messiah, our King and Saviour. The point is, that's who you must know. The gospel is not a philosophy for life. See, Peter doesn't, doesn't get into the, the nitty-gritty of life. He talks about a person. See, first and foremost, we do not have a better way of living to share with people. That's not the message we preach. Christianity is not another religion. It's not the same as other religions. It's not actually a religion at all. We share the good news about a person, God's servant, the holy righteous one, the source of life, God's Messiah, who came to save us. What we want for people is for them to come to know Jesus like we have come to know Jesus. That's our gospel. So let's take every opportunity, like Peter and John, to tell people about our Lord. Second thing you see in Peter's sermon is that the gospel demands a response. I think what strikes me more than anything else as I read Peter's speech here is just how bold he is. Did you get struck by that as, as we read it before? There's just no toning it down for Peter. Remember, he is preaching in Jerusalem within weeks of Jesus' crucifixion to the crowds who killed Jesus, to the crowds who yelled out, crucify him, to Pilate. And he wants them to know what you did was awful. And he doesn't, he doesn't sort of sugarcoat it. He says that. He wants them to realise more than anything else, their guilt before God. But wow, how he says it takes a lot of guts. Look at some of the things he says. Look at verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. He's like, Pilate was going to let him go. You made sure he got killed. Verse 14, he says, but you denied the holy and righteous one, and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the source of life. Is there a more powerful sentence than that? You killed the source of life. It's no wonder next week we're going to see how Peter and John got arrested when they finished this sermon. Now, this is not a model of exactly how we're meant to share the gospel. Uh, these specific sins were, were at that moment of time. Uh, But at the same time, to preach the gospel faithfully, we must confront people about the reality of sin. Unless we understand the reality of our situation, that we are guilty before God, we can never find salvation. See, to preach the gospel faithfully, to come to know Jesus, you have to recognise, I am guilty and I need forgiveness. We need to realise, I have rejected the God who made me and I deserve his judgment. We need to hear our sin means that God had to send his son to pay the price on our behalf. At our life course, every time, the second talk makes me uncomfortable. And I'm the minister, sometimes I'm giving the talk. But it makes me uncomfortable because in that second talk, we explain in the life course that every person is guilty before God and needs Jesus to find salvation. That takes boldness to share a message like that, doesn't it? 
Because some people will not like it. That's why Paul says the message of the gospel will be the stench of death to some. But then he says it will be the aroma of life to others like it has been for us and I pray it has been for you. So to share the gospel, ultimately we have to do what Peter did. We need to invite a response of repentance. See, Peter doesn't just want them to feel guilty for the sake of feeling guilty. That's not his purpose. He wants them to do what he has done. He wants them to repent. He he wants them to turn around, turn back to God and put their faith in Jesus. Look at verse 19. He says, therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. We haven't shared the gospel with someone until we've explained to them how they can benefit from it. To become a Christian is to repent. That's what it is. It's to turn away from our old way of life with living for ourselves and and deciding right and wrong for ourselves, it's to turn away from that and turn to trust in Jesus and follow him. Do you know, I sometimes talk to people who have been around church for a long, long time and they know all about Jesus, they know how he died for sins, they know how he rose to life, they know how he defeated death, they know about the Bible, they know the Bible is the word of God but they are not converted because they have never repented. They've never made that fundamental change to say, now I trust in him. Now I live to follow him. So I pray that you have repented and turned and followed Jesus. But if you haven't, come and talk to me quietly after church today and I would love to talk to you about it. But for all of us, I think we need to pray for Peter's boldness, don't we? We need to pray that we would have that courage to set out the truth of the gospel to invite people to come and hear the gospel and pray that we'd have the courage to tell people the truth about our sin and our need to repent and trust in Jesus for salvation. So we've seen the gospel is all about Jesus. We've seen the boldness it takes to preach the gospel because it demands a response. But lastly, the third thing, the gospel is the most beautiful news. Yes, Peter makes this incredibly bold call, But he also shows them three wonderful blessings for people who turn to Jesus. Come with me first. They're in verse 19. He says, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Isn't that just the most wonderful picture of forgiveness? Yes, we are guilty before God, but turn back to Jesus so that your sins may be wiped out. It's like our sins are recorded on a whiteboard. And Jesus comes and wipes it clean. Actually, it's much better than that because I can never get a whiteboard clean. There's always still the the, the scar, if you like, from what was written on it before. Not so with the death of Jesus. He leaves nothing behind. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us. I know we talk about it every time we meet. But do not ever stop realising how wonderful the forgiveness of Jesus is. Don't ever take it for granted. Instead of facing God's judgment like we deserve, our sin is wiped away. And if you think about it, if that offer can be made to the people who killed the author of life, then that offer is for everyone. Any person can know Jesus' forgiveness. More than that, Jesus also offers, secondly, times of refreshing. Look at verse 19 again. It says, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God does not just forgive us 
and, and then say, go over in the corner and I don't want to hear from you. God doesn't just wipe our sins away and, and then say, now you should just be thankful. God then refreshes us. I think here he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit coming from the presence of the Lord Jesus. But I don't think you're meant to define this precisely. It's just talking about that refreshment that comes from knowing Jesus and knowing his forgiveness. That awful burden of wondering, could I ever be good enough for God, is lifted from our shoulders. We have the joy of knowing God as our Father. We have the joy that comes from knowing that God is in control, whatever happens. The gospel does not just offer a future hope. It offers a release from the burdens and anxieties of this world now. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But of course, those times of refreshing are because Jesus offers us a future hope. And that's the final blessing. I've got the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. Come to verse 20. It says, And that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah, heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. Yes, we have forgiveness now for our sins. Yes, we have refreshment now through Jesus. But we long for him to return, don't we? As Christians, we pray, come Lord Jesus, because our world is broken. There is pain and there is suffering and there is sickness and there is evil everywhere. Our world is broken and we cannot fix it with education. As much as our our modern world thinks, you just educate people and everyone will be better. It doesn't work because the problem's in here. The problem's in the human heart. You can't fix it with social reform. All those things do is deal with the symptoms. When Christ returns, he will bring a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, and there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more suffering and no more sin and no more evil. That is what we look forward to when Christ returns. See, that's what Jesus offers us. He offers total forgiveness. He offers true refreshment of our souls now and a certain hope for the future that cannot be taken away from us. Brothers and sisters, isn't that just the most wonderful news in the world? Isn't that why we have repented and turned and trusted in Jesus? And that's why we long for every person to come to know Jesus like we have, isn't that right? And of course, that's why we jump and we leap and we praise God like the lame man in our story. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have heard the gospel, that we have heard the good news about our Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the blessings that come from repenting and trusting in him. We thank you that our sins have been wiped out. We thank you that we have refreshment now by the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that we look forward to a day when Christ returns in glory, when the evil and pain and suffering of this fallen world will be done away with forever and we will live for Jesus as our Lord into eternity. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.